Justin Brooks is the director and co-founder of the California Innocence Project, an organisation which, among other things, seeks to free wrongfully convicted individuals in the state of California. During its 20-year history, they have successfully freed 30 clients, including Brian Banks, whose story was made into a Hollywood film this year. I caught up with Justin whilst he was teaching in London over the summer to hear a little bit more about the project, his work and where it all began. So 25 years ago, I read about this woman on death row in Illinois. She's 21 years old and sentenced to death. And the article said that she was sentenced to death on a plea bargain. And it made no sense to me that someone could be sentenced to death on a plea bargain. I mean, it's a plea, but it's definitely not a bargain. So I thought, you know, how do you get the worst sentence the government can give you? And you plea, meaning you don't get a trial. You lose most of your appellate rights. So I actually met with her on death row and she told me her lawyer had advised her to plea and then she told me, and I'm innocent. And so I'm thinking, how can you be innocent on death row and you've pled out your case? So I went back to the law school where I was teaching in Michigan. I told my students exactly that. There's this young woman on death row and she says she's innocent. Who wants to help me out with the case? And that was the day that, that the Innocence Project was born for me. I decided after um, getting her death sentence reversed that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And uh, I moved to California because that for me was the belly of the beast, the largest prison system in the United States, the country with the largest prison system in the world, California, the death penalty, the largest death row, um, three strikes. Uh, it had everything a criminal defense lawyer looks for right. when you're looking for problems in a justice yeah. system. And I pitched the idea of, why don't we create a live clinic for training law students? And the idea would be that exactly what I was doing in Michigan, I would work on cases with students and train them to be great lawyers while working on real cases. Um, I based it on the medical school model because in medical school, we've always understood that you don't want people to be doctors who've never worked with live patients. You know, nobody wants to walk into a doctor's office and the doctor say, you're my first patient. <laughs> so people don't like hearing that about their lawyer either. So that was the idea I pitched to the law school is that I would, I would turn our training uh, institute into a live client service program. And I launched the California Innocence Project in 1999 with, with another professor called Jan Stiglitz. And um, we naively at first thought, well, how are we going to get cases? And then the LA Times wrote an editorial welcoming me to California and talking about the project. And since then, we've had a flood of mail for the past 20 years of, of people claiming they're innocent and asking for our help. How, how many uh, applications or letters of correspondence do you get asking for assistance? So we get thousands every year. We've had years where we've had 6,000 letters come in. That, and Here's the sad thing, though. 6,000 letters might become 2,000 files because we have a lot of people who aren't claiming innocence, are claiming sentencing issues or some other problem. But that becomes maybe 2,000 files. Every case is looked into. Uh, most of the cases are closed after an initial review because we realize we can never help them even if they are innocent because we have to have evidence to prove their innocence. So maybe that becomes a couple of hundred cases that become more serious investigation. Um, and then it gets narrowed down to hopefully every year we get one or two people out of prison. So it literally becomes like a thousand to one, uh, you know, 2,000 files, two exonerations. And that's hard 
It's very hard. I talk to my lawyers a lot about it, that you just got to focus on the person in front of you and the case in front of you, because if you focus on the system as a whole and how big it is, you don't feel like you're accomplishing much. But if you focus on the individual in front of you, the person, their family, their friends, the victim who they haven't found the right person, then now we're going to find the right person. Uh, that makes the work feel really worthwhile. Uh, and then I guess if, if we can talk about one of the cases that I know a bit about from having met him before, um, Bill Richards, who served 23 years, I think, in prison. Can you tell me a bit about his case? Because obviously you worked on exonerating him with uh, kind of flawed science. And then also you had to change the law to actually get him out of prison yeah. in the end. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, we worked for 15 years on Bill's case to get him out of prison. It was... Um... It was from back in the early days of DNA and, and post-conviction DNA testing until a couple of years ago when he got out. So Bill came home one night and found his wife Pamela beaten to death um, and in their front yard. They were in the process of building a home out in the middle of the desert in San Bernardino County. Bill worked as an engineer. His wife Pamela worked as a hostess at an Olive Garden restaurant. And Bill immediately called the police. He actually tripped over her dead body in the dark and uh, nobody comes. Uh, he calls the police back. Finally, an officer comes. It's the middle of nowhere. He has to flash his headlights for the officer to find him. And what ends up happening is some of the worst police work I've ever seen. They, they leave Pamela's body out overnight. Dogs actually started to bury her body and when they don't find another suspect, they go after the husband. And this is something I've seen over and over again. You know, if, if you're the person who finds the dead body and they don't find the actual killer, you're going to be going to jail for it because they can put you on the scene. There'll always be somebody who'll come along and say you had a bad relationship with that person. I heard there's problems in their marriage or whatever. There's always some drama person who wants to be involved in it. And, you know, when jurors see dead bodies they, and somebody puts someone in front of them that the police think did it, they usually convict. So it took multiple trials to convict Bill. He's put on trial three separate times, he's hung juries, finally he's convicted. And one of the key pieces of evidence he was convicted of was an alleged bite mark on Pamela's body that this uh, forensic odontologist, which is a very dramatic term for a dentist, typically a board dentist who loves CSI, uh, testified that the dentition was identical to Bill's and um, gave these basically made-up statistics as to the probabilities. Um, we take on the case, we find some much more powerful evidence than bite mark. Uh, we find DNA evidence, and uh, we show through multiple pieces of evidence on the crime scene that uh, the DNA found there, there's male pattern DNA that doesn't match Bill's. We shred the evidence of the uh, bite mark by actually bringing in the original forensic odontologist and showing him that his analysis was incorrect. Um, the photo of the bite mark was taken at an angle and you need to take it straight above the bite mark. So we were able to use uh, Adobe Photoshop to actually correct the angle. And then this forensic odontologist, who was renowned as the best one in the world, came back into court and said, I shouldn't have testified the way that I did. There's not a match here. Um, we had his conviction reversed. We all celebrated. We cried. Um, we said this is over. It had been years and years of litigation. 
And then the case goes up to the Court of Appeal and they reverse the reversal of his conviction. Um, then Bill spends years in limbo. He's sitting actually in the jail, not under the control of the Department of Corrections because he's been exonerated. And so no one knows what to do with him. Um, he's not getting health care. He develops cancer that may ultimately prove fatal. Um, we go up to the California Supreme Court. And the reason the Court of Appeal reversed is they said that you can't have an expert come in and testify that their original testimony was false. And even though a regular person could do that, like I could say, I identify you as committing a murder and then 10 years later say, oh, that was false testimony. And that's sufficient to get a reversal. But they said an expert can't do that. An expert can't reverse their testimony. So he, can't, he can't learn new techniques. He can't, exactly. the, <laughs> he can't learn new techniques and then realize what he did was wrong. So we go to the California Supreme Court, we're very confident, you know, we didn't have much confidence in the Court of Appeal, but we did have confidence in the California Supreme Court, and we end up losing by a vote. Um, so Bill stays in prison years longer. So now we take the battle to the legislature, and we actually get them to pass what, you know, is basically entitled the Bill Richards Law, that says an expert can recant their trial testimony and it be deemed false. We go back to the Supreme Court a second time, and now they rule in our favor and Bill gets out. Um, you know, the Bill Richards story, there's so much to learn from it in terms of bad forensics, in terms of experts. But in terms of our work, it really illustrates that if you have an attitude, you're never going to give up. And you try every type of legal avenue. You know, you, you lose in the courts, you go to the appeal. You lose in the court of appeal, you go to the higher court. You lose in all courts, you go change the law. Like, it, it, it's such, I'm so proud of that case and the work that my staff did on it because we all worked on it for 15 years every way we possibly could to ultimately get the right conclusion. You've still got the attitude that it's almost an American problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was a kind of inspiration for doing something like this is because, right. you know, to, to draw effect, to draw attention to the fact that actually we do have similar issues to what you're talking about. Because they're human issues. I mean, I go around the world talking about wrongful convictions. I'm always amused at people's response when they say it's an American problem. And that's not just in the UK, which has a pretty decent criminal justice system. I hear people in Latin America saying that. I had someone in Bolivia tell me that. They have 80% of their people in pretrial detention. They haven't been found guilty of anything. And you know, they're saying, oh, that's an American problem. You guys really got a mess there. It's not an American problem. and. It might sound egotistical to say, but it's more of an American solution where we've created processes to reopen cases. We've had organizations spring up that do this kind of work. I think where, it's, where the U.S. has advanced more in our innocence organizations is that our innocence organizations are all mostly based in law schools and they all involve lawyers. I think in Britain, you have a lot of people studying law as an academic subject, not necessarily to become practicing lawyers, and you have the division between solicitors and barristers, so they're not all becoming trial lawyers, whereas in the U.S., anyone who graduates from a U.S. law school can be a trial lawyer. So I think we've had more access to lawyers, 
And so I think what we saw happening in Britain, because there were a whole lot of innocence organizations here and not that many exonerations, was because it was much more of an academic exercise where the students were evaluating cases and presenting them, realizing the problems, but not having the resources to go to court and fight them out. You also have a different system here with the Criminal Case Review Commission where you guys put the case together and then put it in front of this one body that makes the ultimate decisions. Or I think in the US we have more options and channels to go fight our battles. At first I was tremendously jealous of the CCRC because we don't have anything like that where there's a body particularly for wrongful convictions. But I've become less enamored of it over the years when I've seen the number of cases that have actually gone through it. Um, you know, it's one of those things, everybody thinks their own problems are the worst. <laughs> but, you know, for me, I got to go fight cases in San Bernardino in California, which feels like it's 100 years ago with elected judges who are tough on crime. And, you know, I take a cup of case in San Diego and the DA immediately concedes it. Right. And we walk out and go help the person get out together. I get a case like Bill Richards. It's 15 years of litigation out in the middle of the desert. So... Everyone has the problem. Every jurisdiction has innocent people in prison. The reasonable person thinks most people in prison are guilty. And now it's about finding out where we made the mistake between most and everyone. And there's a gap there and there's a crack there and every country has one. It's just some are bigger than others. Right. I think a a lot of people in their own head justify that some innocent people will go to prison for the for the good of the fact that a lot of guilty people will also it's a kind of a fishing exercise you know you'll catch a few innocent but on the whole our streets are safer because we've got more guilty people in prison but having met exonerees i I think the 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 effect of a wrongful conviction is just so strong i mean it can ruin families it can ruin you know your mental health it can ruin any prospects you have in the future you know mm-hmm. we don't treat exonerees in the uk especially any better than guilty people coming out of prison you know we still treat them with contempt and mm-hmm. and i think i think that's something people don't really understand it's just a true traumatic effect real impact of it all but you know it's like everything in life it, it's easier to deal with in theory right i think theoretical you're like oh well if one person goes to prison who's innocent and 99 guilty people go to prison, eh, that works. Until you're the one. Right. <laughs> like, until it's your family member who's the one. Then all of a sudden, this is the worst possible thing that could happen to anybody ever. So I think, you know, it's kind of like whenever I talk about the death penalty or debate the death penalty, people will talk to me about, you know, murder victims and their family members and how horrible it is. And they'll say, you know, if you know one of these people, you're in favor of the death penalty. And I always say, if you've sat next to an innocent person on death row about to be executed, then you're going to be against the death penalty. So the, the practical experience of things changes your perspective on, you know, real world stuff. And we will, it is true that we, if we had a system that said you must be proven 100% guilty to be convicted, that there will be guilty people who go free. And there is a balance that's struck. So my answer to that is always like, okay, we recognize that our systems, by making it beyond a reasonable doubt and not 100%, we recognize there's a crack there that people will fall through. Now we just need to provide the resources to deal with that when it happens. Instead of pretending it doesn't happen, when the system's literally set up that innocent people will be convicted. It's actually intended. Mm. because we didn't make it 100% because that cost was seen as too high.
So pulling our head out of the sand and saying, let's provide whatever resources, whatever procedures to find those people if the mistake was made is what we need to do. I'll ask one more question as, as we're kind of in the UK. And I, I just want to know from your ex all your years of experience in, in wrongful convictions, what, what are the things that you look at the UK's criminal justice system and think that's a real issue and it needs resolving? Yeah, so yeah, I have spent a lot of time in UK courtrooms and a lot around lawyers and my mum is from Liverpool and my wife is from Derby and so I spent a lot of time in the UK. Um, I would first of all say by and large that most of the things I see in the UK I think are better than in general the US and here's the reason. The US has the largest prison system in the world, the largest criminal justice system in the world, and it's become a factory. Um, we now have 95% cases plead out. So just like any other business, you know, I, I was speaking in Italy recently at a conference and I said, when, when, when you open a store and you're making a handmade Italian furniture, um, it, it's beautiful and it's perfect and it's expensive. And then you start getting more and more orders in and it goes from like one order a month to 20 orders a month to a thousand orders a month. And the next thing you know, you built a factory and now you got factory workers in there. They're not the original people who knew how to exactly carve the wood and make it perfect. Now it's just, I need more workers. And as you go along, quality drops and more and more mistakes are made. That's exactly what's wrong with the US criminal justice system. It's become so large and such a machine that you know, it's, it's lost its way. I think the UK is heading down that path. Um, I, I researched the UK prison system. It's been 30 years ago I came here and visited most of the prisons. And I wrote an article in The Independent saying, don't model the US correctional system. We have the most failed system in the world in terms of we have the highest recidivism rate. So that's failure. And they started to build American prisons here where they focused on perimeter security and not internal security. And one of the fascinating things I found in British prisons is that the officers and the inmates don't come from such dramatically different backgrounds that there's more interaction between them. They seem to find out more about what's going on and they seem to be able to, to deal with problems as they come up. Um, in the US, we build prisons out in the middle of nowhere. They hire local people. So in, in California, you'll have you know, all these inner city um, African-American and Latino inmates who are then dragged out 300 miles into the desert and then they hire all these local white correctional officers to run those prisons and they wonder why they have problems and there's not as much rehabilitation going on. So I think on the correctional side of it, Britain had it more correctly and I think they've gone down a path where they've been building more prisons, they've been more tough on crime I think they should be looking to Northern Europe, not across the Atlantic in terms of those policies. And I think they do a better job by being smaller. But in the past few years, I've noticed some serious problems in things like compensating defense attorneys. They cut all the budgets. They make it a less attractive profession to go into. As soon as you start cutting what people are getting paid to do work, you're going to get worse work. It's a basic thing. Um, I work a lot in Mexico and Mexican police officers get paid about the same as McDonald's employees and they wonder why they're corrupt. <laughs> like, if you're not getting paid, you're going to take bribes and you're not going to care that much about your job. So I think they've got to move into the direction in the UK of putting more resources in and not always thinking about criminal justice as about reducing crime by putting more police on the streets. 
that's not always the answer. You can end up having a revolving door with prisons that are just churning out people committing crimes. Um, I'm actually taking my students this week. I'm teaching here in London, American students, and I'm taking them to the clink at Brixton Prison. And uh, things like that, where they have a, a five-star restaurant set up in a prison where they're training guys to be able to get good jobs when they get out, is the kind of things they should be doing here in the UK. And that's the kind of stuff that I preach back in the US. So there's good models everywhere for stuff. It's just when the public gets into a frenzy, you know, when you think of it, think about your own life and think about good decisions you made, you usually weren't overly emotional about them. <laughs> you know, the more emotion that goes into a decision, probably it's not as good a decision. And that's the problem with the criminal justice system. Politicians like to rile everybody up, get them all emotional to sell their own policies. And often they get kickbacks from them like, union support from the police or money from the prison industry for building prisons or whatever it is and that leads to not just corruption but a worse system awesome thank you so much <laughs> my pleasure <laughs>